Welcome to this episode of Barrels and Business, where it's my job as your host to bring you tangible tips on how you can grow your business, improve yourself as a person, and often talk about the fun times and epic stacks and coop slams out in the water. Today's episode is going to be way more about business. Nah, it's going to be way more about personal development, mindset, manifestation, spiritual side of things, culture. And we're going to go deep and really break things out on how you can become more human. Oh, I just got the truth bumps there, Michelle. Um, Today, I'm joined by the amazing Michelle Crawford, and she is the chief conversationalist over at Being More Human. Now, not only is she a lead facilitator, a public speaker, an entrepreneur, a HR and OD guru, she's a partner, a sister, and a mother of two bundles of joy. She's got a really diverse background in over 20 industries, including not-for-profit and the commercial world, including health, education, humanitarian I never say that right, humanitarian aid, and she has seen the world and worked with all walks of life. She is super passionate about building culture within businesses because she believes that the culture side of things is what breeds the success and the results. Now, she's also authored an amazing book called Being More Human. I think she's got it there and we're going to talk a little bit about that. And today we're going to dive into self-leadership, mindset and growing your team. Michelle, did I miss anything? I think that's a pretty good intro, actually. <laughs> so, and thank you so much for having me on, Jade. I really appreciate it. Uh, how could I not? After we had so much fun on the Superhuman Summit Science and Spirituality mm-hmm. series and our little jam that we had after Kyle put us in contact, I was like, <laughs> we've got to talk this stuff. We've got to share. We've got to share that's this right. Stuff. And being born on the same day. I know, right? Like, There's something to be. Yeah. <laughs> Kindred spirits. So, okay, where would you start? Let's actually, let's start with the Superhuman Summit. Why did you build it? What does it do? What's the, what's the whole concept behind it? Okay, cool. So we've had two Superhuman Summits so far. We had the first one in March of this year and the first one, uh, the second one just recently in November. For the first one in March, we were really... Um, really aware of people being at home, being COVID, people having to adjust and do flexible work hours and they weren't necessarily used to that. And I guess the tumultuous kind of change that was around at that particular time, which is why we chose to do the first one in March. Um, the first one was a generic superhuman summit. So there, the theme was how to become more superhuman. Um, And then the second one, the theme was all around science and spirituality because we really wanted to be able to focus people and to focus speakers to come to a topic from all sorts of different perspectives. And what does being a superhuman mean? What is a superhuman? Well, there's, I guess, the technical kind of DNA-based answer, which is that there's a whole bunch of strands of DNA that we have as humans and they're never activated So we die with all of this potential that's never been activated. It is possible to activate those strands of DNA. And some of the different ways to do that include some of the the kinds of things that you hear about 
in yogic practices, as an example, where people can transcend time and they can transcend their physical limitations around them. Um, so I guess true the true meaning of being superhuman is are those those things and our ability to tap into human potential in a way that we almost never do on a day to day kind of a basis. Mm. Beautiful. Uh, I was actually listening to I think it was this morning no yesterday morning a podcast of Brene Brown's on unlocking us and she was interviewing um, I can't remember his name now but basically around the neuroplasticity of brains and like how we can grow and how you know literally how you can expand your brain and that we don't tap into things and how you can change it and i i really think that um there's so much of us that we allow to be dormant and and don't drag out just because we kind of get complacent or wrapped up in you know the the world of what's going on or unfortunately being programmed by the bullshit rules of society where we've you know been indoctrinated into being you know industrialized with school pro schooling or you know because they want us to be able to clock in the clock and kind of still wow. keep us i'm gonna go i shouldn't go down too much of a tangent on that but they there's not enough i think um in the world out there teaching us even as young people how we can start being more superhuman how we can unlock that potential and think a little bit more um for ourselves and a little bit more out of the box yeah, and a good example of that is different kinds of psychic abilities, as an example. So they're available to every single human being. Every single human being has the capacity and the potential to tap into themselves in that way. And yet we see it as some kind of special, untouchable, you know, some people have it and other people don't have it. And it's just not the truth. So one of the things that I love about the idea of being superhuman is that we are all superhumans in the making every single one of us. And I just think that that's so fab fabulous. Yeah, definitely. And in, like some people were like, what? Like the, the whole uh, psychic ability and things like that. But even if you think of the basic side of things, intuition is really some sort of psychic ability, right? So, you know, there's, no. there's kind of this stigma attached to charlatans for, for that side of things. But if you really think about it, nearly all of us have experienced the intuition and if we can learn how we can tap into the, you know, the gut feels and things like that, then that that's really harnessing that, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think one of the challenges that we have is different people use different words for the same thing. And if you look through Indigenous cultures and different heritages that have been around far longer than what ours have been, you'll see this enormously rich history of the kinds of things that we're talking about. And I think it's only as as um, the kind of Western programming is happening and our, the, the expectations of um, separating out who we are as humans. Like if, if you look at healthcare as an example, healthcare, the way that it's done today is very disconnected. It's very separate. We treat each bit of our brain and our body as though they're in no way connected. And we know that that's not factually true. We know that as a system, we are very connected. And yet the way that our even our doctors study, for example, is that they want to be an expert in the ear, nose and throat, but they're not, not going to know anything about the rest of your body. Yeah. So it, it's very isolated, okay. very disconnected. Yeah. And that keeps us away from these superpowers that we could otherwise tap into. Yeah. Um, and this is what I love about doc, Dr. Joe Dispenza's work in terms of even thinking about like, our brain tells our body to do amazing things all of the time. Why do we think that it can't help heal us? Yeah, why, that's why exactly. Do we, because we 
bought into the bullshit, you know, we and, and we have, the majority of us have. And even even those people who think that they're awake, uh, like, I mean, first of all, I hate the idea of dividing into awake and not awake because I actually just think that's a crock of shit. But for people who think they are awake and that their eyes are open, there's still so much more, so much more, even beyond what they are seeing and appreciating. Yeah. If someone was just starting their awakening journey uh, and starting to, to look into this, what are some of the resources or where would you direct someone to, you know, start furthering that path? Uh, I think the first thing that you really have to learn about is all about vibration and energy and how that works in your body. And you can go back to some of the original science, like from Nikola Tesla as an example, um, or you can go back to more modern thinkers like Joe Dispenza and Greg Braden and, and Bruce Lipton, and you can start there. But that's the first concept that you really need to get your head around is exactly how energy works because everything else falls from there. Whether you're having a conversation about manifestation or whether you're having a conversation about something else, the connecting factor is always energy. Yeah, beautiful. Um, in terms of energy then, where would you point someone to start that that journey? Like is there is there anything that you've gone, oh, actually for someone just getting into it, not really aware, this is a great simple guide or a podcast or something because energy is something that I talk about with my clients all the time but on this podcast, quite a great deal but I, I, would, I find a lot of people don't know where to look I would literally just google the dumb questions you know yeah. so I literally put into google um uh, energy 101 or the basics of energy or how does energy work or just a phrase a questioning phrase that you would put in and that that's the best way to then focus you on a whole range of other resources that are available and there's endless resources that are available it's not a it's not a problem of they're not being enough information. It's uh, it's if you are inquisitive and you are curious, you will find your way. Yeah, beautiful. And so, just staying on the Superhuman Summit for a, a moment, on the business side of things, how did you like? Because you had some great success with getting it out there and 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 launching the product. You had amazing show up rates, and just walk us through how did you actually create it in terms of launching it and getting the attendee the what were you calling them? Delegates, members, participants, Particip probably. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, well, the way that we did it is not the way that I would advise other people to do it because <laughs> <laughs> mainly in terms of the time. So we we being my team uh, were the I've got ten people on my team and they were the primary primary people behind making it all happen. Myself and AJ have all the weird and wild and wacky ideas and they're the ones that actualize them. Um, but we did it in two weeks, to be honest, like from the idea to the implementation was two weeks. And so it was just chaotic because there were 40 speakers over eight days. And so the first, the first step was to get our speakers. So AJ and I both have really extensive networks. So we were able to tap into either people we'd heard speak in different locations or people that we knew were good speakers. And then we just went sort of second and third hand, you know, referrals. In the first one, there wasn't too many people who we didn't know in some way. They were mainly connected to us in some way, shape or form. It was a bit different in the second one though. Yeah, right. And so the second one, you've already done a test run and everything. How did you market it? What was the strategy? And how many, how many, um, I know in the group I saw, even when I went 
live, we already had a thousand people in the group. How did you find the participants and what was the marketing strategy behind it? Um, the marketing strategy was all on, all on social media and we predominantly used Facebook. We did, we did use, for the second summit, we used LinkedIn more heavily. Um, but for the first summit, it was predominantly Facebook. And again, it was our connection. So we're asking people to become part of that group if they're connected to us yeah. and if they're interested in this subject matter. And then what happened is that each of the speakers publicized the fact that they were speaking. So some of the bigger speakers with a big following might have brought in, I don't know, 20 or 30 or 40 sort of extra people yeah. into the Superhuman Summit group. So it was a mixture of our networks plus the networks from the speakers that allowed us to grow something from nothing to that, that in a very short space of time. Yeah. What I loved um, being one of your speakers and what I saw you guys did really well and I think people could learn from if they're utilizing having um, other speakers or partnering, looking at how you can support them to, to, to publicize it for you. Like you gave us assets that we could easily share that my team could just repurpose. You gave us copy. You did the event so that we could easily share it out as well. So I think one of the key things that I don't see um, people maximizing is when they're doing a joint venture or they're partnering with someone else that's got a network or a speaker, they kind of leave it to just the speaker to do the work for them. They think that they're going to share it and think that they're going to love it as much as you love yeah. it. And yeah, and that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, because A, they're busy and it's, B, it's not their baby. So yeah, that's right. they, exactly. might be, they might be excited about being on the event, but if you don't help them and help their team, then you, you're not going um, to set it up. And that was definitely a learning from Summit 1 to Summit 2. So in Summit 1, we didn't do that in the same way. We did give some help and support, but we didn't do it as clearly or as easily. And that was really, really intentional on our part to do it that way for Summit 2. Yeah, beautiful. The other thing is because you gave me a lot of lead time, my team was actually able to schedule the posting into our marketing flow. So we're setting, like we do a, a marketing communication calendar. We build out a Trello board for eight weeks and try and think like when, when are the big events that are coming up for me as a speaker, as a presenter? And you got to think about how you're going to seed other content that makes sense and it doesn't like randomly pop up. Um, I'm not doing something that's completely against it like when we're talking and that so that it makes sense and that allows me to enroll my audience more in your journey because we could start talking we started putting out posts about my manifestations in the past or my um, my work with Mind Valley because that was going to support the actual talk that I did for you to try and get people more interested. So I think that's some really good learnings for um, our listeners in terms of just really thinking through how can you make it frictionless and easy for anyone that you're working with to do the thing that you really want them to do, right? You want to work their network. <laughs> And honestly, I would say that that goes for any collaboration or strategic partnership that you have. It doesn't have to be a summit. Um, the idea of making it easy for the other person is just a really basic thing that you're able to do to make things work smoothly. Yeah, 100%. I definitely think that um, I've just had, I've had so many times in the past that I've, I feel like I've dropped the ball when I've been speaking on somebody else's thing because they haven't given me the, the tools. And then it's last minute and I'm like, oh, crap. And I, I want to do the right thing by you, but it's too late. And so 
Yeah, any, yeah. any partnership, any collaboration, anything that you're doing where two networks are going to blend, like you just want to, you want to do the thinking for them and, and make it seamless. And then they're going to want to work with you again as well because you, it's going to feel great and you're all going to get the wins. And most importantly, whoever the end customer is, is going to have the best experience. Yeah, and that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. Um, okay, let's let's switch gears. Self-leadership, because really, mm. the Human Summit really feeds into all of it. The delegates, the participants turning up, they're, they're self-leading their growth. Walk me through what you on this subject. I love this subject. It's one of my personal passions, you could say. And I love it because I deal with it every single day in terms of coaching with people. Um, and even the most amazingly impressive CEOs still have something to learn in and around self-leadership. And the topic is such a broad one. You might be talking about mindset. You might be talking about decision-making. You might be talking about delegating. There's so many different um, components to the idea of self-leadership. And it's really the crux of everything else. And there's some really interesting research on exceptional leaders. And it was done in Sydney Uni um, a few years ago now. It's probably about four or five years old. And what they did is they got 200 exceptional leaders. And then they analysed all of the data of what these leaders did every day in 15-minute increments. So they had this massive amount of data. You can only imagine what it was. Oh, my God. And they crunched all that at the end and then they were saying, what is the most important behaviour of an exceptional leader? Have a guess what it was. Ooh, self-leadership? Self self a form of self-leadership. So exercising every day was the single most important behaviour of exceptional leaders. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Now, the reason that's amazing is because that is a component of self-leadership. Yeah, you better have, have the discipline in your life, the regularity, the focus, choose to exercise every day. That is one of the core components to self-leadership. And I found it so ironic that the answer to what makes exceptional leaders is self-leadership. Yeah, that's amazing. You know? And I, I think that if you, like if you really just think about the basics of why it's important to exercise every day as a leader, the your energy levels your stress levels your how you actually show up because just the impact of how you are physically can have an impact on your team like are you sharp are you fast are you agile like how's your strength absolutely yeah yeah um but it I, it, sorry it does also demonstrate your discipline that's because what I was most people don't find it easy to exercise every day. It's not something that you just, you know, that you have this sudden talent of daily exercise. It yeah. is purely a choice and it's purely a discipline. And discipline is at the heart of self-leadership. Oh, amazing. That was exactly when, when we crossed over then, I was literally going to say it's about the discipline and it's building that habit and winning, winning the day. Like if you know as a leader you've done, you've done your exercise, that that's your discipline, that's an anchor for you then that's going to build. And I love this because with what I work with, with the wetsuit CEOs is our discipline blueprints. And the discipline blueprint is about having a solid plan and building the discipline so that you can live in bliss. So 
a lot of people they think oh yeah you like to be happy it's it's easy or it's easy for them or it's easy for that actually the most happy people have really strong discipline and they create a yep. plan to be able to to execute to be able to have that dream life to have the success they have to win and it's about it's about having the self leadership to hold yourself to account and there's a really great um, saying that says discipline is the only way to freedom yes <laughs> and I just, I just love that a because it's ironic <laughs> that's one reason I love it and b because it's so deeply truthful I'm wondering if I've got I've got whiteboards under here and my chalkboard but it's not there um, so each year I usually choose a like a word like a theme and one year I was like okay what's the thing that I really want back in my life and it was freedom but the word I wrote on my chalkboard was discipline. Mm, interesting. And you know why? I, I just find this fascinating because I personally, I have not had a good relationship with discipline. I'm, I'm not what I would call a disciplined person by nature. Some people are a bit more naturally that way. For me, every bit of discipline that I have is a choice and an intention and a focus. Yeah. It is not easy. It's I'm not born with it, <laughs> but I still believe in it, so I still pursue it. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's it is a skill that's cultivated, and the the more practice you do, the better you get at it. But I think the the key thing is having that anchor, like you said the mo like that motivation. It's a choice. So if you know why you're doing it and and you have a really strong why behind it, then you're going to be way more motivated to do it. Like I I've been known for 5am club for God knows how long now. And I was ridiculously disciplined in it to the point that even if I went to bed at 3am, I would get up at 5am or if it was 4.30 in the morning, then I just wouldn't go to bed and just stay up. And just because I had this ingrained thing about 5am club. And what I haven't been able to commit to though is I wanted 10pm club so that I'm not, uh, not, not, not sleeping and I don't have the motivation to go to bed on time. So I'm, I'm want to get up at five because I've got my habit stack. I know I'm going to get up. I'm going to make the bed. I'm going to put my coffee on. I'm going to do my meditation. I'm going to put the oils on and I've got the sound and then I'm going to go for a surf and I'm going to kill the day. And like I, it sets me up and I know I feel so per shit if I don't own the morning before the day, but because I'm because I have the ability to run on minimal sleep, I find excuses of why I don't need to go to bed at 10 p.m. And because I live, yeah, in I would just be looking at. So you're talking about being so great at habit stacking in the morning. All you need to do is habit stack in the evening and have an evening, you know, and you'd get exactly the same outcome. And I've written habit stack. I just because I haven't really anchored into myself the the motivation to commit to it long enough to make this the actual habits like i allow myself to be to work, like even to the point that i cheat myself i live in queensland but i run on new south wales time so i get up at 5 a.m new south wales but i go to bed at 10 p.m queensland <laughs> yeah yeah look i in in my life the way that i think of self-leadership um the, the keys to it are sleep exercise and food right yeah. Sleep is the bottom line. So for me, sleep is non-negotiable. There is no reason in my life, no way in my life that I am not having the right amount of sleep. 
because I've seen what happens to my life when I don't have the right amount of sleep yeah. and it is not good. And what happens is whether it's you or other people around or kids that go to school, the, the world ends up half functioning because there are so many people that are sleep deprived yeah. that don't even know they're sleep deprived. And sleep, sleep deprivation is equal to being drunk driving. It's a torture. It's a form of torture. Yeah. Well, yeah, they literally use it for torture. Um, yeah. And when you do have this that, that sleep um, deprivation, they have shown that it's da more dangerous driving than when you've had a couple of beers uh, if you're at a certain deficit. And so thinking about yeah. how, that, how that impacts it when we're working is... But as an example, if you don't have enough sleep during the day, you probably also don't have the self-awareness to realise it. Yep. So you're probably not going to realise that that decision you just made is not the greatest decision or that you're not going to realise that that conversation that you had was not the most constructive conversation you could have. You're not going to have enough self-insight unless you're very good at self-leadership, in which case you wouldn't have the problem in the first place. Yep. But you're not going to have that kind of self-insight, you know, unless you really, really step back and I often, what I often do is I treat myself like a coaching client. Mm -hmm. So I give myself a coaching session and I'll look at all the different areas of my life and I'll go, how am I tracking here? What needs to change here? What do I need to tweak there? Where's the dial need to be increased? Where does it need to be decreased? Yeah. And I'm just really um, actively shifting all of those things in, in a conscious way. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I do something very similar because the... The way that I run my group coaching program is like we do accountability and we do mindset and we do a lot of questions on Mondays and Fridays where we, we look at what worked and what didn't work. What do we need to keep, delete and start doing? Um, where do you need to turn the dial? And, you know, what can you do to, like if you've, if you've had a fuck up, what can you do to mitigate the risk? Or if you've had a win, what can you do to duplicate the results and really assess that? Um, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm kicking myself. I know I need to, I need to pull, pull myself in line and uh, work on the, work on the night routine. It's like, like give myself a kick up the ass right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it is quite fascinating though, because if you look at the literature and you look at what's written, you know, there's quite a lot that's written about morning routine. You know, there's the 5 a.m. club book, or there's the yeah. Miracle Morning, or there's any number of different books written about the morning routine. But I've personally never seen a book written about an evening routine. I know that people do have it and I know that it is practiced, but yep. I've never seen a book about it. Yeah, that could be a that could be your next book, Michelle. I'm already writing my next book as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> um so talk us through your night routine. What's your So my, my night routine is I am a Netflix fan. So I I really like watching Netflix, but I've got really good discipline about watching only one episode. Yep. So I only ever allow myself to watch one episode. So I don't get in the situation of binging a whole season or something like that because it's it's just not good for my head. So usually I'll watch something for an hour and then the hour before I'm going to bed is when I'm showering, doing a meditation, reading something and then jumping into bed. And I go to bed instantly pretty much as soon as I get into bed. So, yeah, that's my evening routine. Nice. If you ever want to put me to sleep, the key thing to do is turn on the television. And uh, I never, you don't have to worry about me binge watching shit. The, the series might binge watched, it might look like I've binge watched it, but I was asleep midway, maybe 10 minutes in the first episode. Yeah, I, 
Yeah. I don't watch television. I don't believe in watching television. I don't believe in the news, anything like that. Um, I but I do believe in Netflix. <laughs> yeah. No, I um I haven't had an an aerial like an actual um for TV TV in for the last. Oh, I don't even know. We had Foxtel a few years ago, like maybe six years ago. But I think it's been about six years since I've had um an actual plug for it. Um, I haven't watched the news or consumed news in at least eight years. I just made a decision um, that I don't want to start my day or end my day with negativity and false bullshit and it's just not going to serve also, me. If you, if you go from the perspective of programming, you can either program your mind in a way that's useful, constructive, healthy and functioning or you can program your mind in a way that's unhelpful, unuseful and destructive. And the difference between those two outcomes is purely what you put in it. 100%. 100%. Um, even that I made a choice um, a few years ago. I absolutely love murder, death, kill movies or shows, like anything that's like a little bit on, on, that, on that edge. I was a diehard UFC fan like like tragic UFC fan, like planned my whole weekend around being able to watch the UFC. Used to watch Friday night fights every Friday night. And after reading Conversations with God and Awaken the Species by Neil Donald Walsh, I was like, oh, what, what am I feeding in to my brain? What energy is then I'm radiating? Out yeah. And made a conscious decision to, to minimize that. So it means that I don't watch many movies anymore because I look at it and, I'm like, oh, I don't know what to watch. Um, I don't watch as much UFC. I only watch my friend Uriah uh, Hall or my favourites if they're going to fight. Um, but I try to, to really think about that. And I think this is a huge thing. If we think about not just self-leadership, but leadership to the people around us. If you as a parent uh, or an adult are watching the news, watching violent films, watching, you know, violence, to uh, around young children, then you're programming programming them and desensitizing them to violence. And but even worse, even worse, you're watching or you're doing all those things, and then you're telling Tom not to hit Bill. Yeah, don't hit Billy. <laughs> it's like so irrational and illogical. Yeah, I literally I, I see this um, with some kids that are close to me. Like their their mom's like, stop hitting each other, stop fighting. I'm like, all they watch is Marvel comics and. Iron Man and and this and that and the, and the Hulk and they've got all these Hulk toys that have like big fists and it's like they watch the thing where you hit the other person <laughs> like yeah or the hero the hero is gonna kill somebody and surprise surprise look at the rates for teenage depression and anxiety and suicide yeah right and I I don't know if you've ever watched the Social Dilemma before but if uh, you haven't it's a must watch and one of the most interesting scenes was right at the start and they showed a slide about the increase of um, depression, anxiety and suicide in teenage boys, uh, boys and girls, sorry. Then they showed beneath it the implementation and the use of social media and the tracking oh. on the graph was identical. Yeah. Identical. Wow. And, like, if you then even add in the games that kids are uh playing these days like they're like they're all the games are about killing things and even even if you look at the 
the real young stuff, like even Pokemons and things like that, all of it's got an underlying element of violence. And we're seeing like parents, like you see a couple kissing and, they, and they're like, oh, don't look at that. It's like, what? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's disgusting. Like you and your public displays of, of affection, yet, you know, you've got two, two people screaming at each other in the street and you just walk on by. Yeah. Look, I know, like I am a parent and I know the challenges of parenting around that. But for me, I've just always taken a don't go there approach. Um, so, I, you know, my kids have been on social media and that's caused a lot of problems. Um, but I've never allowed them to be anywhere near near gaming just for those reasons. Yeah. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we, as my generation, our generation, um, forget that we didn't have as much of that input. And so they're like, oh, they'll be fine. Or like, we played games, but the games that we played as kids were like Tetris. <laughs> like, like, it wasn't the same level of what they're seeing. And they're like, oh, I was fine. I played, I played games as a kid. No, there's like a whole different level. And I really think that um, we need to need to be a little bit more mindful um, of the input and the programming that we're we're giving our younger generation. Yeah, because, you know, strangely enough, A plus B does equal C, you know, and so we're the only ones that have control over those variables. We're the only ones that have control over those choices. We're the only ones. We can't blame anyone else around us for what we eat or how we move or what we consume. They're our decisions, yeah. you know, which is why it is all about self-leadership. Yeah. Um, let's go a little bit deeper on self-leadership then. And how do you so? How do you coach on this? Like, because I, I know you work with organisations, but if you were working with, say, a small business owner, what's some of the tips that you'd give them to obviously have some discipline, but to start cultivating the self leadership? And how does that impact and roll down through the culture and and develop a more high performing business? So I'll just share um, about a client that I was coaching today. So he runs a small business. He's a painter, actually, and he has about five people on his team. And um, he has, he's a small business owner and he's stressed and overworked and too busy and can't, time, can't find any time for himself. So with every single human, there'll be some kind of entry point or some lever. So the first thing you have to do with everybody is work out where the lever is. Okay, for this guy, the lever was all around his calendar and managing his time, mm -hmm. all right, because he's crap at it. He doesn't use his calendar. He doesn't do anything that's useful to manage his time. He's too busy, um, he's too too busy, busy to, to manage busy to make it That's exactly right. And, he, you know, and then, of course, he can't use the electronic calendar and he can't do this and he's got three diaries sitting there but he's never opened them. So it was the whole, you know, it was the whole kind of conversation. So firstly, you've got to find the entry point. That's step one. Once you find the end, when I'm talking about entry point, it might be about managing time. The entry point might be about relationships that aren't working. The entry point could be about um, the way the person's eating or moving. Something like that will always be an entry point for someone. There'll always be something in that person's life that they want to do better, that they're just naturally inclined to want to know more about, find out more about. And, and do more effectively. So once you find out what that is, then you work with that. And that becomes the core of the onion. And then you can connect into the whole other range of self-leadership 
elements or modules, for want of a better word, in and around that. But the core of the onion is different for each person because the lever is different for each person. And the pain, so the pain point, the, the, pain, the pain, yeah, exactly. the away from yeah. and to motivator. Uh, if you can figure that out, like are they moving, are they more motivated about moving away from something or moving towards something and how? Yeah, can, yeah. yeah. On, on average, about 80% of people in the Australian workforce are away from motivated, not toward motivated. Yeah. I definitely find that we do risk and reward with my group coaching clients. So we set our, our goals at the beginning of the week. What's the three main milestones you're, you're working on this week? And then we set a risk and a reward for if you don't do it to, to make sure that we do it. Always it's the risk that's the motivator. No, no one's like, no one's like, oh yeah, I'm going to go buy myself a this or I'm going to do that. It's always like, I don't want to eat McDonald's. That's really interesting because it talks more broadly to human motivation. So if you think of human motivation, to make it to make it the most simple conversation, people are either motivated by fear or they're motivated by love. And this is what I'm saying. Around 80% of people are motivated by fear and around 20% of people are motivated by love. That doesn't mean that love is not important to the other people. It just means that that's not the thing that drives their decisions every day when they wake up. Yeah. Uh, and their yeah, and their discipline really, like their their choice to to do said thing, is yeah more based on the fear of said result versus the reward. Yeah, exactly. And the, the issue with with away from motivation or extrinsic motivation is the other term that you can use for it. The issue with that kind of motivation is it's not sustainable. You get short-term results because you scare the bejesus out of yourself into doing something, but it doesn't mean that you're creating a long-term habit. You don't get the discipline that we were talking about before of yep. creating a long-term habit. Yeah. So how would you do that? How would I create a long-term habit? Yeah, and how would you how would you move someone from being more fear-based motivated to love-based motivated? Um, well, firstly, you have to get them to see and understand that they are coming from a place of fear. So we use a range of tools, um, 360-degree feedback tools, et cetera, in order to do that, to get that awareness for people. So they can't help but not see it because it, it's in black and white in front of them. So, And what they do is they fill in one that they think about themselves, then they get a 360 done from five other people. So they're getting that real sanity check on is their own perception of themselves the same as five others' perception of them. Oh, that's so that's eye-opening, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. It's it's the best tool. It's really powerful. Um, it's a very sophisticated organisational development tool. I'm a bit tool fussy in that regard. Um, so it is. It, it's it's fantastic. It works beautifully, and it always gets the results that you need. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, when I had my recruitment firm, I we used to do all of our reviews were core underpinned with our values. And everyone had to rate themselves on, on a scale of one to 10 of where they thought they were showing up and embodying the values. And then everybody else on the team did an anonymous um, assessment on where they think they are. Oh, sometimes you're just like, really? Like one of our values was transparency. And we actually had to let one of the girls go because she failed on transparency. And she had rated herself, self-rated like a nine and the team gave her a one like a unanimous team feedback of one. And, and 
like that's a perfect example where the juiciness of coaching is the difference between the nine and the one, right? Yeah. And that's undeniable for people. They can't run away from it. They can't make excuses about it. It's just in their face. Yeah. So you've got to get that awareness. That's so important. Once you get that awareness, people are willing to do stuff. They're willing to shift. They're willing to change. It's quite magical yeah. what happens to get that awareness piece. So let's just talk a little bit more about organizational development and teams and what, so small business, maybe they can't afford to bring in an external consultant right now. Um, what are some of the things they could be doing to increase the awareness, increase um, the employee satisfaction as well and move the, the team to more self-leadership as you rise in your own self-leadership as a business owner? Are you asking about a small business or a larger business? Smaller business. So Sorry. our main audience is, is probably up to 50 seats. Yeah. Okay. So in that context, it's like anything. You get the results of what you focus on, right? So if you're not into this stuff at all, you're not into self-awareness, you're not into human behavior, you're not into human potential, then you're never, ever going to reap the rewards of the kinds of results that we're talking about. It's just that's straightforward. If you don't pay attention to it and you don't do something, then you're always going to be kind of half-assing your way around the world, so to speak. Um, so the first tip for anyone running a small to medium-sized business is actually do something about it. Now, that something might be a book that you read and you're all discussing. It might be the latest time management tip that someone brings in and is implementing across the board. It might be um, someone who runs a team development kind of workshop or something like that for your team, it all comes down to how evolved the CEO is. And this is a really interesting piece of research as well. So um, the, the company that we use for the feedback, the tools that I was telling you about, one of the different styles that's measured is called self-actualizing. And that's a, it, a fancy word for becoming everything you can be, right? That's all self-actualizing means. But what they've done is they've measured all of these CEOs, and this is globally, and they've said, let's look at how what the business performance is like when we're comparing it with how self-actualized the CEO is. And every time, without fail, the more self-actualized the CEO is, the better business performance with every single in indicator that you're talking about. There's not an indicator that doesn't fit into that. So people with small and medium-sized businesses, the main take-home that they need to learn is that that business is only ever going to be as effective as who they are themselves. Yeah. I had a saying um, said to me many years ago that a, a business can never outgrow its leader. Yes, that's exactly the same. So the leader has to grow and develop and evolve in order for the business to do the same thing. Yeah. So if you as a business owner want your staff to be more productive, more efficient, not overwhelmed, not uh, forgetting things, not having time to look after themselves, then maybe you need to use your calendar. That's exactly right. <laughs> you better right. learn how to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And what I would say is it's no different to hiring an accountant to do your finances. Why wouldn't you bring in a consultant to do some work with your team when you can get so many amazing outcomes from it? It's it's exactly the same as outsourcing your your accounts to a finance person. Yeah, bring in an bring in an expert that can. And then the other thing is, 
when you have someone looking from the outside, you're not in the shit because if you're when you're in it, you don't see all the pieces either. No, you don't. And no matter how evolved you are as a CEO, when you're in it, you don't see it. That's very true. Yeah. Is there any books on or tools that do you think that someone could go to for for harnessing their own leadership as a business owner and for, yeah, for leading the team? So many leadership books. Um, one of my favourite authors on leadership is a lady called Margaret Wheatley mm-hmm. and she's quite a newish thinker in the area of leadership, someone who is more kind of popular and well-known but maybe less expertise in leadership but he still writes about it is Jay Shetty. Yeah. Um, so they're two quite different examples. One's a more like academic lived experience of leadership and someone who's really contributing to this conversation about what who leaders are and what evolving leaders need versus someone who in Jay Shetty you've got someone who has definitely embraced all of the elements of self-leadership, you know, his life of being a monk and um, focusing in on all the different areas. Um, so they would be two places to start. What's your thoughts on um, Brown and her, her new book, Dare to Lead, and the, um, the podcast associated with that? Yeah, I love Brene Brown. I love her earlier work more. I think she's sort of at the point where she's, saying the same stuff that she did at the beginning. But I think she's fantastic. I really do love her work. And I use her work a lot in leadership development programs. I use the, um, there's a TED Talk actually, which is a great place to start if you want a TED Talk. It's called The Power of Vulnerability. And that's that's the most watched TED Talk ever. And that's Uh, a Brene Brown Brown TED Talk. Have you watched her um, new Netflix um, documentary? Yes, I have. Um, yeah, like I think she's fantastic. She's really good. Um, you know, the other kind of more popular leaders, if you're talking about someone like Renee Brown, is Simon Sinek. And, again, he does some really great work. Um, I don't know. I think when people get so well known, they have the pressure to publish and the pressure to churn out more books and results and things like that. And, yeah, sometimes they can stray from their original impact that's my feeling anyway yeah let's just touch on vulnerability though um where do you see that fitting into self-leadership and into leading teams look i saw this really interesting post recently on vulnerability and the person was arguing against it so what they were saying is if you show your cards and you're vulnerable in the workplace then someone who is likely to bully you or something like that is going to jump on in and leverage that And whilst I understand what the person was writing, I disagree with their fundamental basis. I don't think there is any possible way that you can have a strong, deep, lasting human connection with anybody without being vulnerable. You might think you can, but you haven't even started. Yeah. It's a surface. It's inauthentic. Yeah, compartmentalizing part of who you are as a human, right? Yeah, but I think one of the biggest challenges that we have as our society is not only do people not know how to be vulnerable with the person sitting beside themselves, they don't even know how to be vulnerable with themselves. 
So it, it hasn't yeah. even started with them as an individual. So how can how can we expect people to have these really open, vulnerable connections with people in the workplace when they haven't even done it, like individually? How can someone cultivate that? How can you work on your own vulnerability? And like, how would someone know that they don't? Because I think, I think that when we talked about self-awareness, I think some people are like, what do you mean? Of course I'm vulnerable with myself. Like, how would... Well, I think... Easiest way, I like to talk about the pile of shit that we each have heaped upon us, right? And that shit you could also call your programming or your expectations or the, you know, um, rules or whatever it is, that yeah. the term that you use. Um, but at the end of the day, we all have that shit. Now, some of us are really open and willing and very comfortable in talking about our own right? We're, we're comfortable to do that. That's where vulnerability comes in. The majority of us are either denying the fact we have any shit in the first place or <laughs> pretending or we're pointing the finger at the other person because the other person's shit pile is higher than mine <laughs> yeah. and we're not owning our own shit quite literally. So don't mind my analogy, but that's that's my yeah. analogy. Yeah, yeah beautiful. Um, so how could someone start practising it? How, how would you, what would be a step? Step one is admit that you've got it. For God's sake, don't <laughs> walk stuff, around. All this stuff that's buried under here. You know? That's right. You know? If you don't think you have any, all you have to do is look in your childhood between zero and seven. <laughs> that's where you find it all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> zero to seven-year-old children that's why i'm so sure we've all got our own shit <laughs> oh yeah yeah and i think once you once you are willing to own that you've got it then the process after that is i like to call it a process of unlearning because what you're doing is taking the heap of shit off and throwing it away and saying i i know that you know you've served me up until now but i don't need you anymore thanks anyway goodbye then you take the next pile off and you can do that with a therapist or with a coach or you can do that on your own or you can do that in relationship with somebody else. There's so many ways to do it, but it's literally about systematically, progressively taking that shit off you. And what happens when you do that is underneath, which is the same for every single living human, no matter what they've done or how evil they might be, the same underneath us for every single living human is this sense of purity and this sense of possibility. When we were all born, we were all born innocent. We didn't know how to be an idiot. You know, we we were born with our innocence. And what, what taking that shit off the top of your head and your face and your body does is it allows you go, to go back to that place. So you unlearn your way back to your original source. Yeah, beautiful. And I think one of the, one of the interesting things to do is Again, I talk about the reflection questions um, that we do uh, with my group, but it's about going, you know, I had this reaction, where did it come from? Like, so, or if something, you know, you didn't handle something so well, or you think you could have handled it better, what was the underlying thing that made you react? What was the trigger? Or what prevented you from doing something? So if you can look at the at your bullshit and go, oh, actually it was my, my fear of not being liked, which comes from <laughs> uh, being unloved as a child. Or uh, what, what is that negative self-talk or limiting belief that flares up that maybe stops you from doing something you really want to do or uh, makes you react in a negative way? 
And I really, I'm very firmly of the belief that you don't have to go through the details of all of your shit to acknowledge that it's there. You don't have to go back to that time that someone might have done something horrible to you or you had a horrible experience, right? You don't have to. I'm very firmly of the belief you do not have to relive that stuff in order to process it and deal with it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in that. Um, there was an amazing Mind Valley author who um, did a lot of work on uh, on tantra and connection that ended up um, unfortunately taking their life. And it it really they did so much work about sharing the vulnerability, but they constantly had to re- they relived the story and the actual event all of the time and i think it's really important that um, when you're moving away from that sort of stuff that you don't go back too often and and relive it because if you're reliving it you're making it you're bringing the past into the current and all of that shit back up again you just need to yeah what you're actually doing is even though you think you're doing the right thing you're just re-traumatizing yourself yeah you're re-bringing up all of that trauma because our brains don't know the difference between what happened 25 years ago and what just happened last week. Yeah. We don't have that capability to know the difference between those things. Yeah. So that's why it's so important not to re-traumatise yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm really big on that because you see um, a couple of sides of the, of the uh, way of dealing with it and so many people are like, oh, let's go back into the, into the thing and it's like, why would, why would you want to be bringing that up all the time? And the same like when people's telling, like if they think they're being vulnerable, I see this, where they go in and they relive the moment and the shit too much. They they use that story and then, and then it, it does end up having a negative impact on them rather than just recognizing it. And this is where it comes to mindset because this is what drives a victim mindset, right? Or in, in my book I talk about a sufferer and survivor mindset. So in a sufferer and survivor mindset, you've got a whole bunch of people most of whom have had some kind of complex trauma and it's unresolved. It's fresh, it's sitting there, it's not dealt with. And what happens is they believe that the world owes them a living and they start blaming everyone else around them for their own stuff that they haven't taken control of. And it's it, that's why mindset is so important in this whole self-leadership kind of journey and conversation is it, it affects every part of who you are. Yeah, it, it can't not. The energy is going to radiate and and penetrate. So let's talk a little bit more about your book and the mindset side of things. Mindset mastery and the book, Being More Human. What does it mean to be more human? <laughs> I think what it means for me to be, be more human is being more of who you were when you were born. That's what it means. That's like the easiest way to describe what it means. Um of course, it means being more grateful, being more loving, being more compassionate. All of those things are, are front and centre to what it means. Um, in terms of the mindset model in the book, when I started the book, I didn't set out to have a mindset model. I didn't even set out to write about mindset, interestingly enough, but I did want to write a book. And in the process, this five-stage mindset model emerged from the work that I was doing with my book coach. So the five stages are sufferer, survivor, passenger, driver, and thriver. Now, if you can imagine them on a continuum where at one end it's pretty much like the victim kind of mindset, which is you suffer and survivor, the other end is a thriver. So a thriver is someone who believes that they everyone is connected, they can 
manifest their well-being and create the results that they want almost instantaneously. They believe there's no such thing as stress. There's just opportunities and possibilities to, to navigate. They basically everything that you want in your world, you're going to get more of if you're in the thriver mindset. Everything you don't want in your world, you're going to get more of if you're in the sufferer mindset. That's the yep. most simple way. Um, but one of the things you attract, right? Yeah, what you think you attract, exactly right. One of the um, the mindsets, the passenger one in the middle, this is the one that's really interesting because it's connected to employee engagement figures. So depending on what research you look at, um, different organ different organizations say different things, but on average it's about 25 to 30%, let's say 27% employee engagement in Australian workplaces. So the problem with that is we're talking about 80% disengagement. We're talking about 80% fence sitters, or in my model, we're talking about 80% of people being passengers. Yeah. So a passenger is someone who rocks up, they do the bare minimum, but God forbid you ask them to do anything else because there's no possible way they will. You know, if you think reality TV is designed for the passenger, right, yeah. because they're living vicariously through other people yeah. based on what they're so a passenger is very much someone who sits there and life happens around that person, but they don't feel like they're in the driving seat. Yeah. Yeah, they're not in control. So the, no. So it's a scary thought to think that the majority of people in our organisations are in that mindset. Wow. Well, I think, and that means in our world, really. Absolutely. You could extrapolate that pretty yeah. easily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we, when we talk about Mind Valley, that's about the stages and states of consciousness and uh, where you where you sit. Are you at the level where you know life happens to you, or life happens through you, or life happens for you? Yeah. And like, yeah, but, actually, sorry, sorry, you could map that in perfectly into the mindset model. Life happens to you if you're a sufferer and survivor. Life, life happens through you if you're a passenger or a driver. Life happens for you if you're a thriver. Yeah. And life happens by you at the ultimate level. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting. Someone asked me the other day, um, would, I, would I want a rewind or a pause button for my life? What would you do? Rewind or a pause? I would never rewind. I don't do things twice. I don't. No, not rewind. Definitely not rewind. Pause is fine because to me that's just being present. I'm pausing all the time anyway. Yeah. Um, it was really funny because actually it was, um, I use uh, the best self cards and it was actually in um, the kids box, the, the little talk, that question. But two days later, my best friend sent me a message going, if you could do over any day in your life, go back and redo it, what would you what day would you do? I was like, oh, isn't that interesting? They're kind of the same thing. I was like, none. Like I, I firmly believe that everything's, everything's happened for a reason. And even, well, if I go either more woo-woo, I believe that we're souls here having a human experience and our soul has chosen the experience that we're having and we're at cause for every event effectively. Um, whether we are actively choosing to be a passenger and thrown around, that's still you being at cause and a decision you've made. So I've either made a soul contract or I made a decision to come and learn from the experience. It's just how quickly I learn from, learn the lesson or 
look for the lesson to be able to move forward. But there's nothing. And, and if you really deeply think about it, there's no past and there's no future anyway. There's only the now. And if you really take the fact that there's only the now to heart, then the only the only possibility that we have to be incredible humans is to maximise every single moment that we're engaged in in our lives. That's the only option. Yeah. Don't dwell on the depression anxiety, right? Don't dwell on the past. Don't don't try and fast forward and live in the future. This is something I, I really struggle with anxiety. So I, I am constantly trying to work on... Uh, the power of now <laughs> and, and present moment awareness and, and not zooming forward. Um, but I think that like if you, this is like the next level of extreme ownership or, or awareness, but the if you can be totally comfortable with that and you're not, not looking at what would you go back and fix and not focusing on that and just going, okay, there was a lesson, even in the present moment, that helps you to move on from things faster, right? Rather than going to blame or going to victim or, you know, going to meltdown with something that's happening right now. If you can go, okay, there's a gift in here somewhere. <laughs> where, where are you, gift? But, <laughs> like, it I, helps you to shift through. I, I entirely agree. And, look, I am very fussy with my emotional energy, right? If I'm giving you my time, it's because I've chosen to give you my time. It's not accidental. It's not just something you might have come across. It is a, a cognitive decision that I've made to share my emotional energy with you or with an audience or whatever it might be. And to me, my emotional energy is so incredibly important that I'm not going to waste it by thinking about what if or what has been or anything. I'm just going to channel it right where I want to be right now in the present. Yeah, beautiful. Um, okay, what else can, what other gifts of gold can you give from the book? You, it's a, I wish, I don't have one of the, tell us. One, I'll just show it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the book. Awesome. Go this so, way. There we go. Beautiful. One of, the, one of the cool things about the book is I have been, been very vulnerable in writing the book. So I've shared a lot in the book, different stories in my own life about when I've been a sufferer or a survivor or a passenger or all of those different um, mindset elements. So the way that I illustrate the different mindsets is with all these different stories. And because my early working experience was working in war zones in humanitarian aid organisations, there's a lot of stories from, you know, working in Africa and being in war zones. And so they're pretty interesting stories. So it's a book where there is some theory, but there's not very much theory and it's really more the stories that support the theory. Beautiful. So it's not boring. Everyone who's read it says they really enjoy it and I get really great feedback about it. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for And it's, it's I, don't, I don't feel like I wrote the book. I feel like the book wrote me. Yes. Yeah, so that's just a bit of a distinction. Awesome. And so let's, let's now talk about growing teams. What's some of the stuff that you can take from the book, from the, uh, the conversations that we've had around self-leadership and that? How would you grow teams? So to use the mindset model to grow teams, if you think about it, each individual has a mindset, but if you add up all of their mindsets and you look at the collective, then the team is going to have a team mindset, all right, which is like the average of all of the individuals combined. And an organisation will have like an organisational mindset, which would be the addition of everyone in the organisation invited. 
So the reason that that's important is because all the lessons you can learn as an individual going through the stages, you can also learn as a team. So if you've got a team and they're in the sufferer mindset, you've got a long way to go before they are functioning as a team. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's super useful. What's some of the things you could do if knowing that there's passengers, right, knowing that most organisations have these passengers, what's a couple of things that you could implement within the business to start moving the people away from passenger mindset? Um, one of the best things to shift away from passenger, because you're moving from passenger mindset into a driver mindset. So where you want to get people is in a feeling that they have control over their life. So you can work with them and help them to come up with their own vision statements. That's a really, really positive way to help people shift from um, passenger into driver. So they come up with their own vision statements and their why and their purpose and that then precipitates a whole other series of personal growth that they want to go on because they're now clear about why they're here on the planet. Because I think one of the biggest issues is that people are unclear about why they're on the planet. They think that they're an accident, yeah. you know, or that they think that they don't matter and other people matter and it's just fundamentally untrue. Like our planet would not be the same if you weren't on it or if I weren't on it or if someone else was not on it. Um, so, so yeah, that's my answer to that one. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and I think sometimes I've heard business owners be like, oh, well, why do I want to help them create a vision for their life or that, you know, you know, learn to do another language that doesn't serve the business? And what, what would you say to someone like that? If they think it doesn't serve the business, they fundamentally don't understand how humans work. <laughs> yeah. And they need to go back to school. Yeah, need to check their ego a lot of time. Um, because, yeah, the, the, like you said, the whole thing, I say that happiness is the greatest hack to productivity and profitability. So any way that you can make your employees or anyone around you more happy, the more productive and, and profitable. So I I would just slightly tweak that and I would say any way that you can work with someone to help them make themselves more happy, which is the distinction, Yes. right, then that's where you want to be. It yes. is not your responsibility to make someone happy. Even if you're the employer, it's not your responsibility to make someone happy. Yep. It is, however, yep. your responsibility to enhance their life and ask them interesting questions so they choose to make themselves happy. I love that. I love that. Um, and like even I, I really believe that as business owners, we the rest like the fate of humanity rests on our shoulders and it's our duty to be the ripple effect of happiness and to to provide places where people are invigorated to come to work and and that you know they love coming to work. They don't wake up each day dreading going to work or even just like I just don't think it's okay for us to foster cultures where people are passengers because that doesn't allow us to, to radiate or be a better ripple effect on humanity. And, I mean, there's one thing is the effect on humanity, and, of course, it goes without saying that that's the most important thing, but the other thing is GDP, right? If you listen to the government, all of our politicians always talk about ways that the Australian economy can grow in order for us to produce more GDP. Now, the quickest way for the Australian economy to grow in order for us to produce more GDP is simply to help people shift mindsets. If you just shifted half of Australia's mindsets from passenger to driver, you oh watch God. the financial returns on that. 
like with bells on. <laughs> well, really think about that. If you went, I've got a, a company that's got 10 employees and eight of them are passengers and disengaged. So they're kind of doing the bare ass minimum. Imagine that you got four of those to move to driver where they exactly. where they just inc like even increase their, their productivity 50%, what that would do to your business. Exactly. And how much as a business owner would you be prepared to pay to get that result? Yeah. Like really think about that. Imagine, imagine 50% of your staff were 50% more profitable, whether that's through efficiencies or selling, depending on what their, their, their duties are. Even your outsourced team, your, your executive, your virtual assistants, your uh, freelancers that you've got in, imagine that you got 50% more productivity out of them. What? Yeah, and you, you could easily get those results. That's, that's the work I see every day being done. Yeah. Um, but people don't get it. No, they just, they just don't get it. Um, if you were going to give three tips to a, a business owner either leading their own team or leading even a virtual team, like they might have a couple of virtual assistants or freelancers, because I still see them as, as team and part of the culture, what would you, what would you tell them to do? Um, my three tips. My first tip is you are your own worst enemy and your own best friend. So in other words, you are the problem and you are the solution. So that's the first tip. The second tip I would say is self-leadership is king. So focus everything that you're doing in and around self-leadership in some way. And the third tip, I'll just based off what you just said, changing mindset makes you money. Oh, oh, I like that one. We're going to make that one the quote for the podcast, I reckon. Changing yeah. mindset makes you money. In, yeah. Like even if you're a solopreneur, right? Even if you're an employee, like if you're an employee, you change your mindset, you're most likely to get promoted or get rewarded. That's right. You make more money as well as the company more money. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, one, that one's going to be my, my, my winner one. Um, okay. So what do you want? Is there a gift that you want to give our audience before we wrap up? Any other little things that you want to share? Yeah. So I've got my book just here as I just showed to you. And I must ago. say I'm it feels kidding. amazing. I'm spewing that I don't have mine on me. Um, <laughs> very readable the design of it is really readable i wanted it to be a pleasurable experience to read so that's why it's um the size that it is uh, so yeah so what we're doing is giving out five free books so if you're the first person to put the word book down in the comments below and if the first five actually we'll get a free book so we will contact you and get your postal address and send it on your way I must say I was stoked when mine arrived because I didn't know I didn't necessarily know it was going and it was it's just it as a beautiful book and the reason I don't have it is because I packed it for camping so it's gone into a box ready for my Christmas holidays um, so I'm like oh damn the box is in the garage because uh, the plastic cup <laughs> ready to go um, so Michelle where else can people how can people consume you where where can they find you 
Uh, so our website is beingmorehuman.com.au and aside from that, we're on we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook and LinkedIn. Beautiful. With the show notes, we'll make sure that we have all the links for everything as well. Um, this might be a cheeky question. Can anyone access the Superhuman Summits that have been that you have the groups on Facebook and the past recordings or are they done and dusted and they have to wait for the next one? No, they can access it, but they would have to ask to to jump onto Facebook and ask to join the Superhuman Summit. Once you join the Superhuman Summit, then you can see them all in there. But they're also all over on YouTube and also on our podcast. So our podcast is called Becoming Superhuman. So if you download that podcast, you'll get everything on that oh, podcast. Amazing. Because I just think that there were so many amazing speakers uh, really going into this this stuff on becoming a superhuman and being more human and hacking all of these um, these techniques that we've talked about today. So I think that would be a great resource for people too. Yeah, fantastic. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. We didn't talk surfing because you're a surfing virgin. but I am a surfing virgin, yes. But I'm going to challenge <laughs> you. Uh, I'm coming to Newcastle. Good. Give me a lesson. I would love that. And Kyle and I are going to take you surfing. Done. I'm <laughs> in. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. I'm going to say goodbye to our amazing audience. Thanks for tuning in today, guys. Make sure that you're adding in the comments. If you've got any hints or tips or books that you recommend on leadership, on uh, mindset, on habits, any of the stuff that we talked about today, make sure that you enter the conversation and share your resources with the rest of the crew. Cool. And thank you so much. I hugely appreciate the opportunity and hey to everyone who's been listening. Cheers. (laughs) Thanks. Hey there, Barrel Chasing business owners. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. What would be amazing and allow us to reach as many business owners just like you would be if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you feel like you got any entertainment or any value out of today, if you could pop on over, that would mean the world to us. See you on the next show.